When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You may not know the name Beth Macy, but you should, because she's one of our country's most compelling and impactful journalists. Her book, Dope Sick, and the widely praised miniseries on Hulu that was based on it, shined a bright light on the scourge of opioid addiction in America and on the predatory practices of a family-owned pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, that helped ignite it. Now Beth's written a follow-up book, Raising Lazarus, to share the stories of valiant efforts across the country to confront the drug crisis with effective patient-centered answers. Her brilliant work is infused with humanity and insights that flow from her remarkable story. I'm telling you, I love this conversation, and I hope you will too. Here it is. Beth Macy, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You grabbed me in an airport in Nashville. Uh, We were both waiting for a plane for Chicago, and I was so happy that you did because um, you've been so impactful as a journalist and as as someone who grew up in journalism myself. I, I really appreciate what great journalism can do. So it's a pleasure to meet you. But before we get into the stories that you've written, I really want to talk about your story because it seems so fundamental to the work that you've done. We're all informed by our personal journey. So uh, tell me about growing up in Urbana, Ohio, 45, 47 miles west of Columbus, Ohio, and about your your life and your family. Uh-huh. That's a nice question. Um, yeah, I grew up in Urbana. It was a it was a manufacturing town uh, when I was growing up. I'm 58, so what in the 60s and 70s. And um, my dad was kind of dysfunctional. I'm from four generations of addiction. He was an alcoholic, and my mom kept the family together. She worked at the airplane light factory called Grimes Manufacturing, which sort of dominated the whole town. And and when she would get laid off because the economy would tank. She would pick up under the table jobs, um, just like the people I wrote about in Factory Man did. And so I've always had an eye for the underdog and the marginalized groups. And, you know, I was probably 30 working at newspapers before I realized that those were the stories, duh, that I wrote the best. And then, you know, by about 40, I had kind of the social capital at the paper where I then worked to pretty much just do those stories and had some really good editors. But I just want to say a minute about small towns because, and also about the power of the Pell Grant. I was the first in my family to go to college Mm -hmm. and I went solely on need-based financial aid, a few scholarships, you know, like the Qantas, you know, gave me a couple hundred bucks, but um, I had great teachers in a small town and school and the library were places where a poor kid, 
you know, really gets a fair shake and is judged for, for their merit. And, you know, in a small town, you know, all kinds of people. I had a lifeguard job in my teenage years and I was buddies with the judge who came to do his laps, you know, every day. And his wife was the librarian at the library down the street. And I had really great teachers that brought language alive for me. I wish you say, not to interrupt you, but in a, in a great bit of foreshadowing, you also had a newspaper route. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was my first uh, <laughs> way to make money. Well, my grandma used to pay me to, uh, she lived next door. She owned our house, which was like probably the only thing that kept us from being homeless. She owned our house and she worked at this dress shop downtown and um, would dress me in these frilly clothes that I didn't like. And so I was like, I'm going to buy my own clothes. I'm going to get paper out. And I did that for years. And then I worked my way up to, to lifeguarding at the city pool. And then I worked at that little newspaper when I was in college in the summers. So before you advance your own story here, talk to me a little bit about your dad and the impact of his alcoholism, because he, I guess he was a a veteran. When he worked, he worked as a painter, but he didn't work very much, apparently. Yeah, not by the time I came along. They were like in their late 30s when they had me, which was quite unusual then. Everybody else's parents were much younger. You know, he wasn't home a lot. He wasn't particularly mean drunk, although I certainly have some traumatic episodes from my childhood, but they're kind of few and far between. Mostly he was just absent, and I was raised by my mom. Uh, who was this gritty, feisty, funny as hell person who could like stretch a dime like you would not believe. And apparently you would go over to the VFW bar when your dad was working because your mom wanted to grab his check before he drank it up. He drank it up. So as a as a little girl, what, how did you process that? Well, it wasn't a good mood. He'd invite us in and I would get a Coke and cashews, which I thought was really cool. But no, like by the time I was old enough to get how shitty it was and how, you know, my other friends' parents were like the freaking Brady Bunch, I was pretty resentful. I was kind of a wild teen and I was very embarrassed. Like one of my boyfriends saw him staggering home once from the bar and, you know, I carried a lot of shame with it and I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And I did. It's interesting. And we'll talk about this some more when we talk about dope sick. But you obviously know a lot more about addiction now than you did then. And um, so much of what you've written and so much of what you've said is about how we think about people who are addicted. And we tend to think of it, and I think of this also in the mental health, mental illness realm, we tend to think of it as a stigma, as a mark on care of character or bad character, but it's an illness. It is. When you're a kid, it's hard to see that. Of course, of course. Well, it's also hard to see if everybody around you believes that it's a mark of bad character as well. Yeah. I just felt like he wasn't taking care of us. You know, and I knew there were times when he tried to get better, there were the little AA devotionals would appear in the house. And then one time he went away to treatment. Um, and I didn't even remember that. But after my mom died, I found this letter that she had written him in uh, Batesville, Indiana, where he had gone to dry up for a month or so. And that must have been like one of the times that the AA devotionals showed up afterwards. But I was just, wow, I didn't know. Like, I don't even know how they managed that, whether my grandma bought it or his boss bought it. Probably his boss was a good friend. 
he would bring, give us money when we were really low and stuff like that. You were the first to go to college in your family? Yeah. I'm, I'm way younger than everyone else. They're like 15, uh-huh. 13, and nine years older. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what, what moved you to go? Well, I had really good teachers, and all my friends were going. And I was like, they're not any smarter than me. And then I had this guidance counselor that told me there was this thing called the Pell Grant, which many years later, I would learn the story about how the Pell Grant came to be, which I'm still fascinated about this era when we cared about poor kids going to college, you know, in the 60s, LBJ and Senator Pell. And, you know, I got to meet him in his later years and testify before Congress. And when I was just like, what? I can go? were free. I mean, my grades were there. I was lucky. If they had told me earlier in my childhood that I could go for free, if I got really good grades, I would have been a 4.0, but I wasn't. But it could have been, but I didn't know. But you went off to, bo- so you went off to Bowling Green. How did you adjust to it? Did you feel comfortable there right away? Did you feel like you belonged? Um, it took me a minute. I'm one of these people that's really lucky. I can drink a couple of beers and stop because I was kind of wild teenager. And I, I'm just lucky that I'm not an alcoholic. You know, it was a party school. Uh, the classes were great. Um, I had a couple teachers that really kind of took me under their wing. I published my first national magazine piece in seven. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. You were taking a course on magazine writing. Did you know when you took that course, did you know, yeah, I think I want to be a writer. I think I want to be a journalist. Or were you just kind of sampling uh, different things? No, I had already picked feature writing. And if you wanted to do feature writing, you you, met, you majored in magazine. And um, and why did you pick that? Because I just thought there were, I liked news, but I really liked the stories that took you deeper into a story. Like, I didn't really care about the breaking news, but the the issues that drove the breaking news were more interesting to me. And I also like being able to write, which I don't now really get to, but being able to write about a variety of different things. But why did you pick journalism writ large? Why, why was that appealing to you? Uh, because some teachers told me I was a really good writer and I liked reading and I, I really like engaging with people one-on-one. Uh-huh. Uh, my husband's this offense post will talk to me if I talk to them long enough. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I just, I was lucky I picked it. I never changed and it just suited me. Uh huh. Yeah. You mentioned this essay. You wrote an, you entered some sort of essay contest for 17 magazine and you wrote about your dad. Yeah. And I had this teacher, Vicki Hesterman, who like edited. It wasn't a contest, actually. It was just a submission for this like point of view essay type thing that I they see. read every month. But she really wanted me to, them to accept my piece so we we didn't say that much about the alcoholism you know she just really helped me with that and i saw her last week they gave me the alumni award and she came to the ceremony it was so moving to see those people that made such an influence i actually tried to find the piece that you wrote in 17 magazine i i I didn't find it but what did you write if you didn't write about your dad's alcoholism what did you write I did. I think I did write a little bit about it, but I remember her saying, let's not go too much into this because everybody stigmatized it. Right. So mm-hmm. I wrote about it a bit and I wrote about him getting lung cancer. The fact that we had a difficult relationship and that I never told him I loved him. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about this last moment I came to visit him. He had this was early days of hospice and, they, and the nurses were at our house and I brought him. He was really, really skinny. He had this brown square from the radiation on his chest and 
we had this really moving, almost like goodbye. And I gave him this Bowling Green dad sweatshirt and he thanked me. And it was a sweet moment, but um, it was this idea of forgiveness and how I haven't, hadn't really come around to it yet. It's hard to forgive that. Yeah. That's also a hard thing for a young person to write. Yeah, I would have been more honest, I think, but I remember she was holding me back. And again, that's probably because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. And you, you went back and you worked in Columbus uh, for a, some, some suburban newspapers around Columbus. Yeah, covering schools and big growth areas and cops. And, and then I went down to Savannah to be a feature writer. And then I moved to Roanoke. And I was never going to stay in Roanoke because I was going to move up to a bigger and better place. And like, it just got me. First time I went to the grocery, the lady at the checkout goes, what are you going to fix with this? <laughs> you know, they're just so friendly in Roanoke. And it's a great place to raise a kid. Talk about how you, you said you really gravitated to long form writing because you wanted to dive in deeper. How did you develop your journalism? How did you develop this? Because, you know, one of the things that animates your work is just how close you get to your subjects. I mean, to the point where you bring them to life. Tell me how you evolved as a as a writer. The first piece I ever wrote, ironically, now that I think about it, I never thought about it like this before. It won a national award. It was a, a profile of a recovering alcoholic who had been a sports writer at the paper. And he was this just wild, larger than life person who had become a developer downtown at the time that downtown was turning from this kind of seedy place and it was reinventing itself. And, uh, you know, he got fired when he got caught covering a sports game from the local bar or watching it on TV. And so there were all these, no one thought he was worthy in the newsroom because they knew him as this crazy guy. And I was like, I saw him as this guy with this great, you know, second chance story. His name's Dave Mudcast Saunders. He became a, a yeah, sure. political consultant. Oh, yeah. I, I know him. Yeah. Crazy, isn't he? Yeah, so what yeah. the material, like they didn't want me to do the story. And I'm like, Dude, this guy is pure gold. Like everybody's written about him now, but I, that was the yeah, first great I personality. Ever, yeah, yeah, and I love bringing people to life. I mean, the lead of that story, I just had fun with, and I was able to get my own voice in. And some of the exchanges that he would call me all the time. He go, "Did you call Governor Wilder about me yet? What did he say?" You know, <laughs> and and just he was so rich as a as a person to write about just a yeah really funny and a i, re- I remember he smart was, as hell too smart as hell and he would call his mother mama's he had it was like the first person i knew that had a car phone and he would call his mother on the way over to her house and say will you fix me a hamburger and i just love stories like that like that just makes me like really understand that person let, let me just say parenthetically as someone who filed a few pieces from saloons that should not exclude someone <laughs> from, from working in journalism some of the best stories ever written were dictated from a from a saloon somewhere so uh but uh he he found he found a better use for himself anyway i think yeah he sure did he's helped a lot of people too and he prefers to go to the aa meetings in town that are in the poor neighborhoods you know he keeps it real i run into him from time to time it took a while for you to, to move to books. You got a Neiman Fellowship and you went off to Harvard and you came back with a resolve to, to write a book. 
And the book you wrote, uh, the first book you wrote is called Factory Man, How One Furniture Maker Battled Offshoring, Stayed Local and Helped Save an American Town. But the larger sort of motif, light motif of this is about what what's happened to small towns in America. And talk about that and what the whole offshoring of jobs did to towns. And I don't know whether your town was affected by that Urbana where you grew up, but yeah, it was. It was affected like in the earlier round. It got Grimes eventually got bought out by Honeywell, you know, this big international yes. conglomerate. And the people that did my mom's jobs, which she soldered airplane lights, like that was then done by machines and it just employed far fewer people. Yeah. And, but Urbana was kind of one of those also rural towns. And I think rural places that have more than one industry end up doing better uh, post-globalization. I mean, it's doing okay. It's not like Martinsville, Virginia, which is the town that inspired Factory Man. And I really, I was working with this freelance photographer who had been at the paper and he self-assigned himself to to document the aftermath of globalization in Martinsville. And, and we met at a bar and we decided to pair up together. And I got my editor at the paper on board to let us work together, which is very unusual. He was being funded by some journalism foundation at the time. And, and he had already made a bunch of connections down there. It was about an hour away. So we just started going down there to say, what's it like when half of the jobs go away? Not just the textile and the furniture jobs, but all the little places where those folks yeah, had spent sure their that, money before, the diners, yeah. mom and pops. I don't think that's well understood. You know, there's a whole chain affected when a, a factory goes down or when jobs go away. And so the diner and the stores and everything downstream gets affected as well. Absolutely. And when I started interviewing them, it reminded me of when my mom would get laid off and have to pick up under the table jobs, you know, when I was little and a person would give me their cell phone number and they'd be like, oh, it's about to get cut off. Here's my mom's cell phone number instead. And so I, I tell students that when your when your own values and your own stories sort of intersect what you're trying to write about, that's when I think your writing most comes alive. And there's this moment, I don't know if you've read Factory Man at the end, where I'm I'm taking one last pass through Bassett, Virginia, the town that only existed because of that company. And now it's just basically old folks there and no businesses at all. Well, maybe one Bassett Industries building in a bank. And this guy is um, putting a bunch of bricks into a culvert. And the bricks are the bricks from Bassett Superior Lines. And people are coming back and they're taking souvenir bricks. And that's what it that's what it meant to those people. And the bricks are still warm from the sun. And it reminded me of those people and my mom. And, and it's this really complex story where nobody ends up mining the back room of this new global store, right? You know, it's oh, it's going to be good. It's a win-win. Yeah, President yeah, Clinton yeah. said, uh, you know, it'll everybody will benefit. But in fact, in that in Martinsville and Bassett, in that county, you know, they had had the highest unemployment rate for a dozen years. Food stamps tripled. Disability rates had gone up to 64.1% just since China joined the WTO. And it wasn't a win-win. It's, I don't know if it's ever going to be a win-win. And at the end of the, my research, heroin-related crimes started going through the roof. 
And that's when I got the clue that, like, oh, this is taking over these small towns. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. These places also became kind of a hub of Trumpism. Mm. And talk to me about that and about sort of the sense of abandonment that made these folks so receptive to Trump and how it's changed our politics. Yeah. I mean, I go into quite a bit of deep, uh, depth in that. In fact, Freeman, of course, that's pre-Trump. It came out in fourteen. But you saw these communities just oh, really implode, crime going up, and people are blaming the victims, basically. These are the same areas where Purdue and other companies. Purdue Pharma, yeah. Yeah, the MakerBox become targeted and proliferating with pill mills. And so that desperate people are still going to have to survive. And so a lot of people started doctor shopping and using the sales of the pills they were getting because so many people were addicted as a way to pay their other bills. And I want to talk about the TAA, which is super wonky, Trade Adjustment Assistance. Yeah, right. That was offered as a panacea somehow for all of these massive dislocations that uh, globalization was was causing. And it didn't. It didn't. Only a third of the dislocated workers even took them up on it. Going this back is supposed to be aid right? to help uh, workers make the uh, conversion to something else when their yeah. jobs went away, essentially. Yeah, but like a lot of people took like, oh, I'll become a paralegal. And there was maybe one paralegal job in that town. And everybody says, well, why don't they just move to Roanoke or move to a bigger place or move to Greensboro. They don't want to move and they've got family members and kids and elderly relatives that people all over the world where that's happened, people haven't moved. And it was like they had never interviewed a dislocated worker, whoever was running that program. I mean, it was, you had to be in school full time to do it. There were all these really onerous things. And how are you going to work even at a gas station and pay your rent if you were going to school full time? It was Really crazy. And so. And also, people, I mean, I hear it in focus groups all the time. People saying, uh, you know, train for what? Where am I going to go? It's your point. Where am I going to get a job like that around here? Yeah. And they were, you know, they, they, they were uh, really, really bitter about it. Very bitter. And, you know, a lot of that was done under the Clinton administration and China joining the WTO and just a lot of anger. And, one of the first places I went when I was hanging out with that photographer, Jared Sories, is he took me to a food pantry and they were dispensing the food on what I was like, what is that? It looked like a conveyor belt and it was an old textile mill conveyor belt that they had converted in a food distribution device. And I thought, well, that says it all, doesn't it? And you could tell what people used to do by their disfigurements. Women who had spent years over um, sewing machines, making sweatshirts, were kind of hunched back and some of the men were missing fingers who had worked in furniture factories. And it was the last, last place to come and get a box of old food. Yeah. I think one of the things that's happened in our politics and in our society is you do have a hard division between sort of 
metropolitan, college-educated folks, and people in small towns and rural areas, uh, who some bunch of whom haven't didn't go to college, work with their hands, work with their backs, doing stuff that in pandemics we call essential work, but we don't respect most of the other most of the rest of the time, and they know that they sense that. Uh, so just finish the point on this because we got to get to the. I want to get back to the heroin, uh, and, you know, and, and oxycontin uh, scourge. But um, how? W- what then is the appeal of sort of right wing populism, Trumpism, uh, to the folks that you covered, and probably to some of the folks you left behind in in uh, Urbana? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think they really believed him that he was going to, you know, stop the coal mines closing, stop the bring offshore jobs, bring them back. And he didn't. And he also did a lot of kind of racial dog whistling that appealed to some folks. That's just, you know, which has been going on since the start of our country. And, and, and that's just so sad and and yet when you look at their towns and how they have changed and disintegrated you really do go oh what the hell democrats like what did you do for these people you know in a lot of small towns i report on for raising lazarus you know the media that's your latest book yeah yeah it's about the solutions and it's the median has declined so nobody's really telling the stories then you've got social media coming in and people are only reading things they already agree with, which aren't necessarily right. And my own relatives call the New York Times the fake news. And I'm like, I have written for the New York Times. You would not believe the fact checking. Yeah, right. Yeah, Times. I have as well. Yeah. You say your mom's name, Sarah Macy. They're going to like want to see your birth certificate. Practically everything is fact checked. And, and, and yet they believe these things that are not fact checked. Yeah. This issue of, um, I, I wanted to ask you about journalism, local journalism, because you work for, you know, you've spent your life in working for local uh, news. It's a desperate situation in many communities in this country. Local newspapers have died and, you know, people are getting their information primarily from sites on the internet. It's, it's a tragic situation. It really is. And I don't think we were reporting on ourselves very well either. Uh, my next book, if um, I want to, I want to write a memoir next, but I want to de- analyze that decline. And, you know, you go to a small town like where I'm from. I mean, it was never a very big paper, but all that's left is crime and sports. And when you have just crime, I mean, even the Roanoke Times is a lot of crime court because it's easy stuff to get and they're not reimagining. You know, for a while we had a really great website and then we got bought bought by uh, venture capitalists and all this kind of stuff that just wanted the building, the downtown building. And there's just nobody telling it other than, you know, there's some nonprofit startups and I'm involved in one of them. And that's a good sign. And they point out that in all of Virginia, there is no full-time education reporter west of Richmond, which is half the state. There's no full-time health reporter, education reporter. Um, it's really dire because we don't even know what we're missing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not, I mean, as with television and so on, we're so fractionated that we, we're, we're just having different conversations. You know, when, when you have a hometown newspaper and everybody's reading it, then yeah. you can discuss what's in that paper and 
you have some basis for a common understanding, there's there's not that. I just wanted to underline that because I think it's something that is not just a threat to journalism. I mean, what you said before, all the downstream damage of a changing economy, this is one of those. That's not just a threat uh, to journalism. It's actually a threat to democracy. It is. you know, and it's one that that we need to urgently address. We also need to urgently address uh, the addiction issue. And talk to me about how that evolved. I was curious. I read that you had actually gone to your publisher and pitched a book on the, the whole issue of addiction uh, and how it was ravaging communities. And they were reluctant. You, you wrote an interme- intervening book because when you first pitched the idea, it was like, I don't know. Yeah, it was my gatekeepers in New York. It was both my then agent and my then editor. And I told them both because I had just briefly gone back to the Roanoke Times. And I did this three-part series on the fact that heroin was taking over, not the inner city, but the the wealthy suburbs. And readers kind of spit their copy out. And that was as I was talking, because there's that one-year gap between when you turn a book in and when it comes out. Yeah, uh-huh. I was trying to pitch him because I wanted to sell that second book so I could quit my job altogether. And I eventually did, but it wasn't the one I, I saw happening, which was like, if heroin is in not just Martinsville, Virginia, but it's also in Hidden Valley, which is the cover of Dope Sick, it's this beautiful cookie-cutter McMansion-type neighborhood. Like, we got a problem here. And I knew because I remember the the prosecutor I interviewed who was sending the one kid away to federal prison for five years for his role in his private school classmate's death, that those two kids alone were using and dealing with 50 different kids in that neighborhood. And so it wasn't, it was like, that was just the tip of the iceberg that made the front page of the paper. There was this huge iceberg underneath. And I knew it. It wasn't an easy fix. Kids weren't going to just stop using because of this fear of withdrawal. And that first kid I interviewed, the one who was going to prison, taught me the word dope sick. He said, if you're dope, if you've got X amount of heroin and your dope man isn't coming till next Thursday, you're going to parse it out with a little bit each day until you're going to see him again. Uh, because the worst thing in the world is to be in withdrawal. It's like the worst flu times a hundred. You're on the toilet. You're, you're so sick. You can't even imagine. And uh, he, came, he came to the premiere of the Hulu show at our little um, independent movie theater in Roanoke. And he's like, I taught you that word. This raises the issue of, I mentioned earlier about you getting close to your subjects. Uh, it's very obvious that, you know, you lived this with people. You tried to get as close to it as you could. And uh, you got close to some of the young people, some of whom lived and some of whom uh, didn't. Uh, you did an audio book uh, about one of them, uh, Tess Henry, who uh, was a subject in, uh, in Dope Sick. And you and her mother, I guess, did a, an audio book together about what happened to her. Talk a little bit about, about her. Yeah, so it was an uh, Audible original podcast called Finding Tess. And I met her in 2015. Once once I finally got the agent and editor on board with the fact that we were in the middle of this heroin crisis, you know, three years later, I met her and she, she her dad was a surgeon, her mom, a hospital nurse, should have had every, you know, thing to help her get better. And she was just struggling. She just had a baby, learned she was pregnant while in jail because she was stealing stuff in order to buy heroin and um 
I just asked her if I could hang out with her because I knew I'd learn a lot about her. And she told me how she had gotten originally addicted through at an urgent care center by two 30-day prescriptions. Of, of OxyContin. Well, it was different opioids, actually. Mm-hmm. In, in her case, she, and, and then she quickly found OxyContin on the streets. And when the OxyContin got hard to get, her drug dealer showed her how to snort heroin, which is just like how she snorted Oxy. And then, um, or hydrocodone. And then she started injecting when that did, when the snorting didn't keep her from being nerve sick. And she just was somebody that hit, uh, all kinds of barriers. She couldn't get on MAT. There was a waiting list. It cost $500 for the first visit. Virginia hadn't yet passed Medicaid. You know, uh, one place would only see her if she tried their counseling first and failed would only then let her get on her buprenorphine, which is medication-assisted treatment, the gold standard of care, but there's a lot of stigma around it. And so, and I knew she might eventually end up overdosed, but in, rather instead, as a sort of a last-ditch effort, her grandfather paid for her to go to an abstinence-only rehab in Las Vegas. And when she bombed out of that, because she couldn't withstand the cravings without buprenorphine, she was then homeless and doing sex work on the streets of Las Vegas and she was murdered on Christmas Eve in 2017. And talk about like getting a call. Her mother didn't find out till Christmas Day. I got a call the day after. I think she had just found out that morning, actually. It took a while to identify her body. And here's her mother crying. And every detail that came in that day was worse than the last. You know, her body's found in a dumpster. Her body had been burned. She was naked. I mean, it was just like, Oh my God. And, um, I had already finished the book, but, you know, I had time to rewrite the end. And I kind of as a journalist had never been in that situation. And I called a friend of mine who had. Well, you, you're leaving out one detail. Did, didn't she text you and ask you to come and, and ask you to come and, 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 and help her get out of there? No, she had earlier when she had been on the streets in Roanoke, she had texted me and asked me to pick her up at a trap house. I see. Yeah. And my husband said, and I always want to do that. Like when I needed her to get her material, I would drive her to NA meeting. But when she needed me, my husband said, you can't do that. It, it could be dangerous. And I didn't do that, but I called her mother and her peer support person instead. But no, she, we had been texting maybe two weeks before her death about how hard she was trying to get home. She had already called ahead to the methadone clinic to sign up. That's another gold standard medicine. She wanted to get custody of her son back. I mean, she's a real, like, warrior. She's tough, street smart. Even though she had grown up with everything handed to her, she really had been on the streets for a long time at that point. And she was like, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Can I get an early copy? You know, I'm like, I'm rooting for you. And then she's murdered. And it was just like, oh, my God, what do you do? What do you do? I just put my notebook down. And, I mean, I was at the funeral helping her mother pick out an urn. I was at the funeral home when she said goodbye to her battered body which they had you know they had done her up so her mom could say goodbye and her granddad it was just three of us and that's the last image of the book her mother like right seeing her head and tucking in pictures of her son and her favorite dogs i think a lock of the dog hair or something she loved her rescue dogs that was actually how i met her a friend of mine just found her dog loose one day and called me and said, I returned this dog to this woman. And she, she didn't know how, um, she, her, it was her mother's 
and had been taking care of the dog and she had to go to work and she didn't know if she could leave her heroin addicted daughter at home alone with her son. She didn't know if she could trust her, take care of her baby son. And that's how I met her. What I wanted to ask you is I did a a, a podcast with a friend of mine named Alex Kotlowitz, who's uh, oh, yeah. wrote, wrote Great a book, there are, there are No Children Here. And he wrote a book about, he's been very focused on violence in Chicago. And he, uh, you know, was hanging around on the streets with gangbangers and people who were involved in in shootings and who were who who were shot and uh he told me that when he was writing the book and when he finished the book he was deeply deeply depressed and he went to a therapist uh and the therapist said you've got secondary ptsd you've you've gotten so close to this that you're experiencing it as if you were you know part of this and uh, you, you get, you know, stories like Tess's make me, uh, you know, have to ask you, how did you deal with all of that? Yeah. Obviously, you're obviously a very feeling person. Yeah. Yeah, my blood pressure went way up. I went to my doctor. He thought I had PTSD. Sent me to a psychiatrist who said, yeah, it's probably secondary trauma and uh, I, I work with this group um called the dart society for trauma journalists i've done their programs and so i knew about it and then um he the psychiatrist said you have probably secondary but you, you're just depressed and anxious <laughs> you know and provide some medication and you know also said you should write about some happier things which i used to be able to do when i was a feature writer and so anyways, I had to go around talking about the book. My blood pressure came down, stopped that medicine. And then I started hearing about really good things that were happening and innovative things that were happening in the addiction realm and, and even law enforcement. And I wanted to, that felt like a helper story, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers says, find the helper, find the helpers when you're scared. And so the new book was much easier to write. Because I was writing about the people that I was one generation removed, you know, from the the pain. So, yeah, so therapeutic for you in a way. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, especially at the time when the settlement money is coming down and a lot of communities don't even know what to do with it. I'm worried that it's going to go to abstinence only treatment, all the things that failed tests, incarceration first models. And so it seems like a time for the nation to see, like, they're outliers. They're all outliers. It's few and far between. But people who really have figured out how to reach this really hard to reach population that has been stigmatized for so long. They're, most of them aren't in our healthcare systems or any of our systems other than criminal justice and how to help them not die. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Part of your reporting led you to this this pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma. Tell me how that un, how you unraveled that and what you what you learned. Yeah, so the first third of dopes in the book is um I always want to go back, just like it did in factory men. I want to go back to these communities and see how they're doing now. And so I took our former um, 
reporter who had covered OxyContin when it first bubbled up as a real problem with crime in the coal fields of Virginia, you know, and across the border in Kentucky and West Virginia. And his name was Lawrence Hammonds. I took him out for coffee when I started working on Dope Sick. And I said, I, I read, reread the stories. Tell me who you think I should talk to. And he's like, well, you have to go back to this Catholic nun activist who was like, took Purdue on in a fiery way. You know, she's like four feet 10 <laughs> and, um, in her 80s. And she's still counseling every day for 12 hours a day. And you've got to call this doctor, Dr. Art Manzi. He was the first, from Lee County, which is the westernmost county in Virginia. Uh, you've got to call him because he was the first person to actually pick up the phone to Purdue and say, look, I know it says your drug is virtually non-addictive, but I've got kids I immunized in my practice who are overdosing in the library at high school. I've got farmers who've been, they've had competing opioids before because of injuries but they get on OxyContin and they lose everything. They lose their truck, their family, their farm, everything. They say, that drunk became my God. And they just blew him off as some kook from Appalachia. They didn't, you know, there's this scene in um, Danny Strom's Hulu show, the show I worked on. Dope sick. On dope sick. Wonder, wonderful. Where, where Richard can't even series. get West Virginia in uh, Virginia right, you know. It's just like he's so looking down his nose at it and this... A doctor and nun from Appalachia. Richard Sackler from Purdue Pharma. Yeah, who really was the driving force behind this this lie that OxyContin was safe. So I thought, and I love a battle story. So I go back to Sister Beth, Dr. Manzi, other, some of the first parents of the dead are a big part of the book. And I play that story out. And you see that that's the part of the story that really gets the most attention in the Hulu show. Is the fight against Purdue as well as like the Michael Keaton character. He's that's based on a who, doctor. who just just won an Emmy for his performance in Dope Sick. So good. phenomenal, phenomenal performance. So good. And, and to see a A list actor like Mike Michael Keaton in this, and he's 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 kind of part Doctor Ridley and part this doctor I found in Tennessee named Steve Lloyd, who actually did get addicted. And then to see him with his social capital, the character, struggle to get on buprenorphine, struggle to get on methadone, and then come back as a guiding force. It's it's a lot like what Dr. Steve did and and also like, you know, Dr. Ben Z. So that was really cool. And um getting to recreate the scenes like the sentencing hearing in 2007. And that was another thing Lawrence Hammock told me about. He was there, that the reporter, and he goes, there was this moment I'll never forget. I'm like getting teary just telling you, but there's this parent that brought her, snut, smuggled her son's ashes into the courtroom that day and like, you know, waved them at the executives and said, this is, this is your drug and this is what your drug did to my son. And just very moving. And I was so glad we were able to really put the onus on who the criminals are in the, in the show. And a lot of people read the book and won an award. It was on the bestseller list, but Millions of people watch the show and some of them reach out to say, you know, I called my addicted son for the first time in three years. And, and that was really moving because we got to We got to knock the stigma down. Yeah. And put the onus where it belongs. Do you think Purdue Pharma ultimately agreed to a six billion dollar uh, settlement and then used bankruptcy uh, as a tool to. Go ahead, talk to me. You're shaking your head. 
they filed for bankruptcy. First, they agreed to a $3 billion settlement. Then they filed for bankruptcy to get themselves out of the super wonky, which they love, uh, to get them out of this multi-district litigation in Cleveland. They filed uh, for bankruptcy, not in Connecticut where they're based, but in this one jurisdiction in White Plains, New York, because there's one judge, bankruptcy judge, who's known to favor third-party releases, which is the great loophole that they use to be able to retain a large part of their wealth and to wipe out all the 4,000 civil lawsuits against them. It doesn't protect them from criminal uh, suits. So a lot of the parents are still very hopeful that the DOJ will uh, bring justice because they're now recidivist criminals. After 07, which is where our show ends, you know, these three executives who like basically took the hit for the Sacklers and were paid richly for it. Um, you know, they doubled down, they hired McKinsey to teach him how to go around the, the rules that they said they would abide by. And, and they, their best sales year was the year after the settlement. And then, so they get him again, the justice Hartman gets him again for another settlement in 2020. That's, um, and so that's kind of wrapped up in the bankruptcy, but the hope is because the bankruptcy is currently on appeal, the the judge said, per, the Sacklers, and uh, they said the bankruptcy judge doesn't have a right to tell Ed Bish and other parents of the dead that they can't sue the Sacklers, that that's unconstitutional. And now it's at the Second Circuit Court for second appellate level, and the next level would be the Supreme Court. So, you know, a lot of the communities need this money. They need the $6 billion. So they've set up this side of Sophie's choice between like justice and <laughs> abatement. But unless somebody goes to jail, like what's going to keep another millionaire from wanting to become a billionaire and do the same thing, knowing they could just pay a fine and, and come out of it? I really hope the DOJ indicts the Sackler. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> Yeah, well, the, 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 you, you've it's a you've got uh, First Amendment rights yourself, you know. So <laughs> as long as we're talking uh, talking about the law, you mentioned that you were prescribed medication when you needed it. There are appropriate uses for pain medications and so on. How do we balance those two things? Yeah, how do we balance the the need for you know and the utility of some of these medications and the sort of predatory practices and untruths that surrounded this drug that has created so much havoc, but it's still out there still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, opiate, opioids and even Oxycontin are totally appropriate for cancer, end of life, post-surgery. But the thing that Purdue did is they said, oh, it's, it's available. It's safe to take long term for moderate pain. And so then you had kids getting it for wisdom teeth surgeries and, you know, back pain and all manner of things. And it wasn't just the narrative around Oxy, it was the narrative around all opioids because yeah. they infiltrated, you know, the, the JCO that's, you know, the, the governing body for hospitals that said, unless you treat a person's pain, you might lose your Medicare, Medicaid reimbursements you know they they changed the whole system by buying you know buying people off basically i mean at the root that's what they did and but yeah and then in 16 the cdc writes a new guideline saying you know opioid should be a last ditch effort 
uh, for moderate pain, very last ditch. So then a lot of doctors overreacted and took stable chronic pain patients who weren't misusing the drug, were using more, needing more every month. And, you know, a lot of those folks got just yanked off their meds. And then they're, because they're dependent, just like Tess was, and they're going to go to the black market and get fentanyl and, yeah. or commit suicide. And I hear from a lot of those folks every time I do an interview that they, they kind of come out angrily at me and I'm trying to understand that. But the main thing is our doctors haven't been trained how to deal with pain and addiction. Is, is that too benign uh, an attitude toward the doctors themselves who are prescribing? Because by now, the pernicious effects of opioids are pretty well known. I mean, laymen know it. Doctors certainly know it. I mean, how much of a responsibility do doctors have in this whole sordid mess? Well, it's huge. They were lied to, of course, just like the Michael Keaton character was lied to. But what I say when I speak to them a lot in talks and stuff, I'll say, I know not every one of you took a free trip to Arizona or Florida to become paid spokesman for Purdue Pharma, but you participated in a system that now has 7 million people, Americans, addicted to opioids. You, by golly, you ought to participate in the system to get them better. And and that's a, that's something we could talk about now because there's this mad act up before Congress, which would basically take the waiver requirement off buprenorphine and which we know is the gold standard of treatment. Only 8% of American doctors have bothered to become wavered because they don't want these difficult patients in their waiting room. And that's a real crime. And you've said that it's harder, that there are more obstacles to getting trained up to administer the, the, treatment. the treatment for addiction, then it, it's much easier just to prescribe and walk away. Yeah. It, it, and it's much easier for the patient to go get dope than it is to get the treatment. Much easier. And I was talking to Dr. Gupta, the drug czar, on Friday, and he said of the 8%, only about 20% of them even actually prescribe. Like they get waiver and then they don't do it because they really, they don't want the difficult patients. So yeah. hospital systems need to change. And, you know, I profile in the new book, this, um, and in the Finding Test podcast, the head of our ED in our big hospital system in the Western half of Virginia, it's called Carillion. You know, he, at the beginning, he thinks it's just treating a drug with another drug. It's not his job. And poor tests have been into his ED numerous times for abscesses and overdoses. And now he got all in one week because a person in power changed his mind, got all of his docs wavered. And now when you get somebody like Tess goes in there, they get connected with a peer, they get on buprenorphine, they get connected to an outpatient counseling and it's happening. And you should hear his voice in the way he's changed. He's not hopeless about it. Yeah. And you, you have a series of stories in your new book about uh, hopeful things that are being done all over the country. How do you, how do you bring these to scale? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I was trying to get with Dr. Gupta. I think the first thing is make the, the MOUD, the medications for opioid use disorder, scale that up. The first thing is to get rid of that waiver requirement, which is, you know, design, it stigmatized drug users all over and, and the prescriber. Ex explain the waiver and what it requires. 
Yeah, the waiver requires of physicians and nurse practitioners to get eight or 16 hours of training to get a special DEA dispensation. And then they're only allowed to see a certain number of patients until they've been doing it for a couple of years. And then still they're capped at 275. So getting this mainstreaming uh, addiction treatment, uh, this MAD Act that's currently in the Senate would take that requirement away. And so just like any doctor can prescribe Oxycontin, now any doctor, if this passes, will be able to prescribe buprenorphine, which would be a huge thing. And then I think we need to get a lot of money to harm reduction groups that are already on the ground, that are meeting people in ten encampments and in McDonald's parking lots to get them into systems of care. Because the largest group of people, 40% with OUD, don't want to stop using. They don't trust the systems. They've been treated like dirt when they have gone to the hospital. And the harm reductionist, these are people that do mobile needle exchanges and give out safe use kits, Narcan. They begin to build trust. And we know that people that work with them are five times more likely to enter treatment than folks that don't. So I'm really hoping that the settlement monies um, goes first to the the groups on the ground that are doing that, as well as to like, you know, the law enforcement innovators who aren't just putting people in jail because we know that doesn't work. They're just going to come back. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge issue, the sort of criminalization of addiction. We've got prisons filled with people who have addiction issues. And rather than getting diverted to treatment programs, they wind up in prison and end up on the streets again, just repeating the same behavior. So, But the more poison drug supply, you know, and they come out and they're opioid naive and then they get heroin, go back to their old dosage. And now it has fentanyl in it, or it's just all fentanyl, and they die. They're told, oh, I forget how many times. It's, it's many, many more times likely to die when they come out of prison. Yeah. So I want to ask you just, I want to return to the beginning of our discussion about your dad. Once you started delving into this world, did you have greater insight into your dad's own addiction, alcoholism? Are there things that you would have liked to have known then? Are there things that you would have liked to have done then? Are there things you would have told him? Mm. Well, you're getting deep, Axe. It's what we do here. I guess I would have liked to have had some support around that. You know, there's this, this town of Huntington, West Virginia, has, which has been just socked by this crisis. They have a recovery-themed high schools now. And if a, a kid is having a bad day because their parent is addicted and they're struggling, like they can just kind of check themselves out and go talk to people. Mm-hmm. That would have been a wonderful thing. I didn't know anything. I just thought he was a loser who didn't take care of his family. I mean, he embarrassed me. When he did talk to me, he wasn't very nice. I mean, I think there were years probably that we didn't even talk to each other in the same house. I just viewed him as a non-entity, which is really sad. I mean, my husband is the best dad in the world. And there were moments when the kids were little and I was like, wow, this is what a good dad does. And it would just piss me off all over again. You know, I didn't have any of that. I had this amazing uncle who was, was a, a former editor of the newspaper that hired me. We just had his celebration of life on Saturday. He was more of a father to me than my own dad ever was. Back then, I mean, that was when the drunk war was really kicking up. There was really no sympathy. And to see that letter that my mom wrote him 
after she died, you know, it was so uh, lovely. And, you know, she was a little updates on how the kids were doing. And, you know, and then he wrote her back and he had dropped out of high school or junior high. And, you know, his spelling was atrocious. And to see that, like, he was trying to, he was trying to get better. He just didn't have the tools. He didn't have the access. Well, Beth, uh, one thing that I'm sure of is that um, the things you're doing are going to make a big difference in other people's lives, other kids, other parents. And the reason I was so excited to have you is I believe so deeply in journalism as a force to bring about change. Yeah. And you've you are doing that. The work that you've done, your book, the Hulu series that flowed from it, it is raising people's consciousness. It is changing the dialogue. It is creating uh, movement. And uh, that's journalism at its best. Thank you. It means a lot. It's an honor to be with you. And I, I look forward to reading this book, but also to your memoir and to you doing what you can to make sure that there are other journalists down the line in small towns and rural areas who will shine a bright light that we need shown. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, the great questions. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.